2: There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And for the rest of the show, we're going to talk with one of the only veterans in America who was a close advisor to President Trump, starting in the early days of his candidacy and lasting all the way through his final days in office. Though anytime we talk about a president, or policy, or Congress at all, it's easy to consider this segment of political conversation. But at its core, this is a conversation between two vets, just talking about what it was like to be inside the most powerful office in American government during one of the most tumultuous eras in our history. Today, I'm honored to talk to the distinguished retired Army Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg and discuss his new book, War by Other Means, a general inside the Trump White House. Now, let me start with just getting through the Cliff Note versions of his bio. Retired Army Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg has dedicated his life to national service with tours in Vietnam, in Panama, Iraq, as well as commanding the 82nd Airborne Division all the way. Kellogg advised Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign and worked as chief of staff to the National Security Council, as well as National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence. General Kellogg, welcome to CBS, Eye on Veterans.
1: Ah, Thanks for having me. I do appreciate it,
2: sir. I was diving into this because this is one of those books that looks behind the curtain, and you really take us far behind the curtain into those opening days, weeks, months, even starting on the campaign trail. But what I liked is rather than just being another political tell-all, you're a veteran, and you come to it with that veteran perspective that I know we share, even though we were on different ends of the ranking structure. Um, the opening of the book talks about your early days as a junior officer. And I got to be honest, as a former enlisted sailor who only rose to E4, I didn't always know what to think of the academy types. And frankly, you know, the relative peacetime I served in didn't give me the best perspective to understand all that the officers were going through. But uh, you open the book after finishing... ROTC in college and you report to the screaming Eagles of the 101st Airborne. And I loved how you included the exchange with the senior enlisted leader after you called him, sir. Explain just a little bit about coming up through uh, the ranks of 101st and what it means when you call like a chief or, uh, you know, uh, Sergeant Major, sir.
1: <laughs> it's funny when we were that goes back to Ranger school when I was working into Ranger school and and it, you take off all your rank when you go to the U.S. Army's ranger school. You're just a ranger. Well, but I had been I'd grown up my entire life with my mom and dad. I called my dad, sir, my mom, ma'am, you know, everything would, you know besides mom and dad. It was just, you know, just talking with proper courtesies. So you get into the military and you don't think much about it. And then I walk in front of this senior non officer. And, uh, you know, I said, sir, and I reported into him. And I started doing push-ups right away because he said to me, you know, I, I'm not a sure. I work for a living. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. And uh, it took me a while. It took me a lot of push-ups to really realize. Okay, I'm not going to be saying that very much anymore. But what 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 I, what I really loved about being a junior officer, especially with the 101st Airborne, because I had an incredible, incredible commander and a guy named David Grange, who's a legend in the American Army. And it's what, the best Ranger competition is named after him. Uh, it's really about loyalty and service to nation and the importance of having that personal connection with young men and women. But that personal connection you have to establish with them, because I would always I thought about it early on, that, you know, America's parents give the leaders of the military their most precious possession, their, their children. And they, they, they give them to you sight unseen. And they, they all they ask is you take care of them. That's all. Just take care of them the best you can. And I think sometimes official senior officers, even junior officers, don't think about that. But I took that to heart. I said, you know, I've got to give them everything I've got, and I've got to take care of them. And I know that I'm going to lose them. I know something's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. But I don't want to ever look around to a parent and say, well, I just was stupid, didn't do it right. If we lose a kid in combat, and, and I did, then I want to make sure that, that I did everything I could right to make sure that when, when the, final, the final toll is taken, that people will say, okay, you did everything you could to make sure these kids got through it all right. And I did that primarily through my non-commissioned officers because I used to tell later in life, when I was in the 82nd, I reminded all the officers, hey guys, we're Christmas help. We show up every two years or three years, and then we go home. But the non-commissioned officers stay in these organizations for decades. And they're the heart and soul of an organization. And you have to absolutely respect the non-commissioned officers uh, and what they do for an organization. And that all started from the very start when I was dropped for push-ups in ranger school. And that, that non-commissioned officer, I, when he made that comment, you know, I work for a living. I got it. And the progression of time, that was so true to me.
2: Mm, so cool. Yeah. In fact, I'll leave more of the ranger school part for the book because it was fascinating. If you've ever wondered what it's like to go through ranger school, you give some really, really good details in that. You also give some great details about being a junior officer and your experience in Vietnam. If I could just ask real quick, just what what are one of the takeaways or one of the lessons you learned immediately in the Vietnam era?
1: I, I think what I learned in, in the Vietnam era as a junior officer was it goes back to what I said about the non-commissioned officers and how valuable they were to an organization. But I also found it important that I don't care what rank you are, because I saw that with Dave Grange when he was the battalion commander for us, that if you bond with those young men, uh, that they will do anything for you. And they will stay with you in the middle of a fight if they trust you and believe in you. And you establish this bond between both of you. They know who you are. They know you're the commanding officer or the
2: leader. so. It was a leadership principle that I learned early on. I bring it up, and I wanted to pay special attention to that opening of the book, because the book that we're going to talk about, War by Other Means, A General in the Trump White House, is politically charged. It is about a political administration. It is about President Trump. He is hes one of our most debated presidents. Uh, People, you know, the reaction is visceral. I mean, people love him. People hate him. But I wanted to lead with the fact that you are a military guy. First, you are just like me. You're a veteran first, um, which is why I'm kind of curious to get your answer on this question. Do you think a young you, you know, a young first lieutenant or a young second lieutenant would have been friends with a young Donald Trump because you chose ROTC service? I mean, you were a football athlete. You were at a great college ahead of you. You could have done just about anything. And you chose military during a Vietnam era. Do you think you guys would have got along in the 70s? Yeah, you know, it's, it, that's a great question,
1: because it does call us for some insight. And I think the answer, or I believe the answer is, yeah, I do. And, and here's why. It's because he was authentic. And what I mean by authentic, he, he was one of those guys, and I've got to go to the end before I go back to the beginning. He's one of those guys who sleeps really well at night, because he doesn't, he gets everything off his chest. I used to tell people he's the most dangerous man in Washington, D.C., and they said, oh, Why? I said because he tells it exactly as it is and he doesn't care what he says and i said growing up that was something i appreciated that okay we could we could agree to disagree and what i found behind the door that he would listen and he would sit there and you could have a hard discussion with him on anything in the world and he had opinions like we all do but he would listen to me he would listen to what was going on and i think going with him i said he would be one of those guys that would fit a, would have fit right into the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam. He probably would have gotten fired early on, and he would have gotten fired early on because he his ability to have tact is probably nowhere, uh, and he was but he was very blunt about it. But you had to appreciate that, and he probably would have told the commander, "Well, we're not going to do that because this is stupid." Instead of you know, the, the joke I always use with him was like, you know, the diff- here's the difference with me and Donald Trump. If somebody walks in a room with a dog that is, let's say, an ugly dog, if the dog, if he, if the dog comes into the room with me, I'd say, that's an unusual animal. Can you tell me about it? Donald Trump would say, boy, that's an ugly dog. What kind of is it? You know, he just, I think the answer was yeah, because I saw what he was like uh, when the Klieg light were not on and he, he just had a, a good attitude about life. The other thing is, I've got to tell you as a veteran. He loved the American military. In fact, going forward, I remember Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we were talking one night. He said, he said man, he really, really believes in us. And I said, yeah, Joe, and that's part of the problem. And I'm just said, I think this is a, I'm really worried about it because he believes in you so much in the military that if tomorrow morning you walked across the river or came across the river from the Pentagon and you said, hey, you know, Mr. President, tomorrow the sun is going to rise from the west. He would be standing in the White House lawn looking to the West the next day. He believed in you guys so much. And it caused us problems early on because he really believed in you. And I would always caution him about that. So I want to get that one out real quick because there was a lot of stuff in the press about him pushing back on
2: veterans and not liking veterans. He loves the American military. I think he loved him too much. And we'll be back with more from retired General Keith Kellogg and a fascinating look at his book, War by Other Means, a general inside the Trump White House.
1: So I want to get that one out real quick because there was a lot of stuff in the press about him pushing back on veterans and not liking veterans. He loves the American military. I think he loved him too much.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, in fact, a point you illustrate very well when you talk about that um, a tragic military mission that happened in Yemen early on. I want to say like in January of his presidency, the first military operation that right. happened that, that uh, sadly cost a SEAL his life. I believe it was Navy SEAL Chief William Ryan Owens and uh, gained some valuable intelligence against al-Qaeda, but uh, it came at a tremendous price and that was within the first couple weeks he was there and that mission was built upon the advice of Mattis and others and you kind of demonstrate through this how he grew how he actually asked more and more questions and pushed back more and more when they were deciding on military actions because of the results of that very first mission that happened early on in his presidency. So I like that. Um, I also like how you stole my next question, too, because you jumped right to what I thought was one of the coolest pages <laughs> of this book, 112 to 113, where you literally did talk about his bluntness and the ugly dog analogy. I, I got to ask, you know... We like that in America. We like that bluntness. And I think that that explains his popularity to so many. He told it like it was. He spoke like the enlisted guy. He busted balls. He came up with nicknames. Little rocket man for the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. He had a nickname for all the people that were his opponents. Hell, he probably had nicknames for people he liked, too, inside the White House that we don't talk about. But... uh was there ever a moment when you were like, damn, man, would you just not get on that? You're derailing. Would you just stop with the comments and get to the point? I mean, did that ever frustrate you as one of his advisors?
1: Well, he would make comments, you know, and but he would always get off of when he made the real hard comments, he would he would look up and he said, you know, words really matter. And and I knew sometimes he was role playing. Uh let me give you one example is when he called uh, during the middle of the Afghan negotiations when we were trying to get a comprehensive deal with the Taliban. Uh, after we had the Doha agreement signed on 29 February 2020, three days later, he picks up the phone, which was really – he we do that all the time, and I wish Joe Biden would do that. He picked up the phone and called the chief negotiator for the Taliban, Bararder, and it was on the translation. I was in the Oval Office with him listening. And he starts talking to Bala Baraga, and I keep thinking, God, how is this being translated? Because he was being really, really hard. And he basically said that I will bring the full weight of the United States on you if you do this, to include if I have to, I'll use nuclear weapons. I'm going, I just want, you know, we all looked around, and we we all took (sighs) one of those deep breaths, you know. Okay, but he knew, but he looked up and he smiled. And when he did that, I said, I know exactly where he's going. I know exactly what he's doing. Because he's, he's, he's in the role play to make sure this guy gets it. Now, here's what's interesting. Barada got that. Do you know that we did not lose a single American soldier to the Taliban killed in action from that conversation until 20 January 2021? Not one soldier was killed. And I think Barada understood forced respect, but he would do that all the time. It's when he, uh, he talked with when he when he called me, because I was there on the phone when he decided to call Kim Jong un Rocket Man, I was on a secure call calls me at 11 o'clock at night. He goes, hey, what's with this guy shooting rockets into the Pacific? And he was talking about Kim Jong-un. Yeah. And I go, and I thought to myself, okay, he said, you know, you know, rocket man. And I'm thinking, Elton John, song. what what are we talking about? And then I realized he was talking about Kim Jong-un. And he said, yeah, little rocket man. I said, sir, he's just, he's, it's a cry for attention. You're not paying attention to him. And this is his way of getting attention out there of this. What you need to do is eventually make contact with this guy, because that's what Trump would do. Trump would talk to any leader, any time, regardless of, of, the, of, the, of what time it was at night or what the condition was. He would always call, and he would do that. But, so where I'm coming to is that he would make these comments. Sometimes he would make them deliberately, but he would make them in a the role-playing role, because he understood his role, and he understood his role was to protect America, and he didn't care what he said or who heard about it. Um, mm. i always like to say, one of these days, they'll be able to declassify all those, uh, you know, all those calls because the calls are kept. One day, somebody will pick up those, be able to declassify all those records out there. And I think that will be a book unto itself. because it'll be fun to read what he said to everybody. Right. Include hanging up on in, in Angela Merkel one time. Just tell Gomba, you know, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is good.
2: Which so often the media would get a sniff of, and then that would become the story, the context of the conversation or whatever would be left out. It would just be like, he's a jerk, he says mean things, he uses bad language, and then yep. that's the story, yeah. I'm with you there. Can I ask another personal question? Sure. Since we're talking about this, um, my brother, God rest his soul, uh, uh, dedicated his career to the intelligence service there in Langley. And I recall early on, do you remember like, I mean, you, these were some of your opening days working in the White House. And he's there speaking at the wall of honor in the lobby of the CIA headquarters in Langley. And the conversation steered to the size of the inauguration audience. Now, I don't know how it got there. I don't know how they ended up on that topic, but I remember like thinking to myself, you know, I got a stepfather that worked there. I got a brother that worked there. Why, why is anybody talking about the size of their birthday party? Like in front of that wall, man, I mean, like that's, if I stood at the Vietnam wall and talked about my birthday party size or the, you know, how many people liked me, wouldn't I seem like a jerk?
1: When we talk about growing into a job and here's what I'm talking about growing into it. And let me back my way into it. You know, John Trump spent a grand total of 17 days in Washington, D.C. and never spent the night here before he became president of the United States. Never was part of the Washington establishment. When we were talking about, and I, this is the reason why I'm going to have to back into it because you, you get some appreciation on this. When we were talking about filling positions in the government, the CIA came up. Most of the people didn't understand what the CIA did. You know, they, they did. They did realize that these are the kind of people out there who will go in the middle of the night in the darkest of places and serve our nation, and sometimes take the bad guys out. and Have to do it that way. But until you start to appreciate what these organizations are, like the CIA, what it does, which are, you know, what they're either covered or clandestine or covert activities, you really don't get an appreciation from it. And he kind of grew into that where he finally realized, hey, this is what these guys do. It's one of those, oh. And so so you take it and going, okay, you go to a place out there right after the inauguration and people are still banging you pretty hard about that. You're not really thinking about the moment of where you're at and the place that you're at, until later on you realize, oh, that's pretty sacred. A good example, it's a, it's a corollary, it's a parallel, is that when we were, first went to Memorial Day and, and later on Veterans Day, when we went down to Area 60, he didn't realize n- n- what Area 60 really meant at Arlington. And I explained to him, sir, the reason why that's kind of sacred ground, as all of Arlington is, is that's where a vast majority of those killed in Afghanistan and Iraq are buried, and it's and a, a huge amount of people. And it's one of those, oh, 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 now I get it. I kind of understand it. It's the first time when we went to a dignified transfer, when we, when we locked about the seal, uh, we killed in Yemen. When he went up there, we went, Ivanka went because Milani was still in New York with Baron and we went up there and he came back and Ivanka looked at me and she goes, man, how do you do this? And I said, well, get used to it because this is going to happen more than one time out there, but you don't understand the, the location of the gravity. So here's where I'm coming from. And I'll close the circle on. Sometimes you don't understand the significance of a place, an organization, or what it is until you grow into it. And that's because if you haven't ever done it, the eye opening starts. You can't just talk about it. It's once you start living it and living about in the intelligence community, then you understand, oh, I get it now. And that's why it's important the president grows into his position. And the president, President Trump, grew into it. Mm. He started off as a rookie. You know, you don't expect a rookie coming out of Class A baseball to be able to hit, you know, Max Scherzer, you know, from the Dodgers and Washington Nationals right away. You grow into it. You know, a couple of years down, yeah. So what I'm what I'm telling you is like, I think that was part of his growth that when he saw it, that he wouldn't have done the same thing a year later or two years later. But that was kind of like a rookie mistake, and and I and watching him grow into it, I said, that's kind of the way he was.
2: Best explanation ever, because I think, you know, for me personally, I'd never really given it that much thought. So thank you for kind of clearing that up, because it's always been sort of like a thing I kept in the back personally. All right. uh, Some other great explanations in this uh, book. Just so many great looks behind the curtain. I want to dive a little bit deeper into um, uh, the details about the development of Trump's Afghanistan plan and the catastrophic mishandling, say, of Biden's exit strategy. It is apparent to me from the very beginning of this book, I mean, literally, I want to say the first time you see President Trump and you guys are having a meeting in the Roosevelt Room, I believe, you're talking about an Afghanistan withdrawal strategy. Yet we don't sign the Doha agreement until the ninth inning of the game before Mm -hmm. his term is almost done. Mm -hmm. How come we didn't slowly draw down and start pulling all of that armament and all those up-armored vehicles and all that ammo and all those weapons and all that personnel and intelligence and valuable assets through Bagram earlier than the last innings of the game. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Well, again, remember what I said earlier about
1: he trusted the military, and the military kept telling him, you know, we're going to get through this. Give me another day. Give me another pint of blood. Give me another dollar. And he believed in the military. And I was one banging on just the opposite side of it because early on, before he became president, he said, we've got to get out of Afghanistan. And the reason he said it, because his instincts were 100% right, because we were so focused, and this is what I believe, and of course, I relayed this to him as an advisor to him. Look, we are so fixated on the Middle East. We are so fixated on Afghanistan. We are not paying attention to our flanks. We're not paying attention to the Russians and the growing existential threat in China. And, and you know, even a good example, and then I'll come right back to this, is, you know, both of those nations have hypersonic missiles. We don't. We're still in R&D. Why, are, why is that? Because our focus was so much on the Middle East and we didn't figure on the future of warfare. So the, the military kept pushing back on it. And, and there was a lot of times when I kept saying, you know, sir, don't go there. And finally he got, that's when he got rid of, the, you know, some of his advisors because they were slow rolling them. And it took us a while to finally get together with the Taliban. And we didn't get any traction with the Taliban until we got Barrar out of jail. We're the ones who got the chief negotiator out of a Pakistani jail when Trump picked up the phone and asked Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, to release this guy because we said this is the right guy to negotiate. He was one of the original founders of the Taliban. He, he actually wanted to negotiate before we captured him, and we got him captured and put in Pakistani jail. But we can work with this guy. And it took us that long because nobody wanted to do it. You know, I, you know, he, would, Trump wanted to bring everybody to Camp David, and I mean that was one of those things like holy mackerel, and I said, wait a second, guys, come on, that's exactly what you know Carter did with Menachem Begin and Sadat, you know, and fed him, you know, cold pizza and warm beer up at Camp David for twelve days until he came up with the Camp David Accords, and this is something that that should be done, but it was just because everybody kept pushing back, so he was fighting against the institution, and it took us almost. Two years before we could do it, because every advisor came in and didn't recommend it. Look, that's one of the reasons why I've said on accountability. I would not, we need to have accountability in Afghanistan, how we got to where we're at. But anybody who was a senior officer who served in Afghanistan at three-star level and higher should not ever be called to discuss Afghanistan because they're the ones who brought us down. Uh, and nobody wanted to get out. And it became, as the president said, he, asked, he answered his own question. He said why is it so hard for us to get out of afghanistan and then he answered it's habit so he, he asked the question and had the answer i said yeah you're right because everybody's put their careers of 20 years on a, in afghanistan that's where they made their bones and nobody wants to admit it was wrong and in instead of focusing on the left flank or right flank the chinese or the russian uh, and it just was institutional you know sabotage from within the, the pentagon within the State Department, within a lot of organizations out there, they just didn't want to do it. You know, Biden made the right call about getting out. It's how he got out, which was terrible. But I think he had it right. It was just we were pushing back against the instincts of a lot of people out there because a lot of people were wrong and they'll never want to admit it. I don't care if it was Dave Petraeus. I don't care if it was H.R. McMaster, I don't care if it was Jim Mattis. I don't care who was out there, but a lot of people uh, pushed, pushed uh us towards a, a never-ending war, you know, and we'd still be there if we hadn't come up with some type of plan to get out or if Biden hadn't made the call to do it, uh, we, we'd still be in Afghanistan. And I, these were probably the hardest discussions I had with H.R. McMaster was on Afghanistan because we were diametrically opposed. And he was a national security advisor, and I was advising the president, and, uh, and you had Mattis and everybody else uh, basically pushing back against us uh, on trying to get out.
2: I've always wanted to know this. After World War II, we maintained presence in Germany. And to this day, we've had that presence since the defeat of the Nazis. Why is it we shouldn't have had a similar presence in Afghanistan to hold back that Taliban philosophical wave from breaking over the country and thus pushing any sense of freedom that civilians wanted, uh, you know, down? Why didn't we create a U.N. base there that would it have just become a target or was it financial? No, we could have. You know, part of it, a two, that's a two part answer because
1: it's a great question. And I've been asked that question more than one time is, it, first of all, when we came up with the plan, it was a conditions based plan. We were going to leave forces in place and we are going to told the Taliban, look, there's a limit where we're going to be. We're going to be at twenty five hundred U.S. troops, three thousand paramilitaries supported by the CIA. We're going to keep Bagram, keep air support. We're going to be there until a, a government of national reconciliation is in place. So we're going to be there for a while to do that. We knew that. The second thing is when people talk about Japan and Germany after World War II, remember they, they were homogeneous countries. You know, East Germans were the same as West Germans to a degree. They both were Germanic. They spoke basically the same language. The same with, with Japan. When we put it together. It was homogeneous. Even the Koreans are homogeneous. When you look at Afghanistan, it's tribal. The Pashtun, with the Taliban, 46% of the country. But you also have the Tajiks out there that are part of the country out there. And you have a whole range of different tribes. So the country is a tribal country. And I would remind everybody, look, Afghanistan picked up the moniker, the Graveyard of Empires, because of a lot of because of its history from Alexander the Great in 326 B.C. Nobody's been able to tame it. Even Condoleezza Rice, when we went in on after 9-11, she she made a comment, and it's a public comment she made when she went in there when, when she saw that we were going in to Afghanistan. she sat up at Camp David, "Oh my God, it's the graveyard of empires." And she was exactly right, and we were we just became another part of the graveyard. The, the Russians tried it, the British tried it. The Alexander the Great tried it, and it, because it's a tribal country, and we, we should have we could have put a handle on it. But we shouldn't have stayed there as long as we stayed there and nation-built, because you can't build that nation. It's not going to, you're not going to build it. Uh, and it's entirely different than, than the countries we fought with in World War II or fought against in World War
2: II. Mm. And these were all concepts that you think Trump fully was able to absorb, get his head around, and was acting in the best interest of the United States, not just trying to do whatever the military told him to do.
1: Yeah, I because I, we, we'd talk about it during the campaign in 2015-16. We'd sit on Trump Force One, like there was about four of us, five of us, and we'd sit and we'd just talk. And we would sit across the table, uh, by, by the way, truly eating McDonald's hamburgers, that's true, um, <laughs> as we flew. Um, that was one of those truisms. And we would just sit and talk. And we'd we kind of, he'd bounce stuff across the table. And w- he was very Socratic, even in meetings uh, in the situation with, with senior leaders. What I mean by Socratic, he would go around the room and he would ask people their opinions. And if he if you came up with an opinion that was counter to his belief, he would press you on it. And I saw a lot of people fold. They would say, well, OK, Mr. President, but also the people who were always successful with President Trump were those who were willing to stand up and say, no, I think you're wrong, Mr. President. And here's why. And he would and he would ask everybody in the room. The first time we were in the Situation Room and it was on Afghanistan. He went around the room, and I'll never forget this, Where a young woman sitting just two, two chairs to my left. And he said to her, what's your opinion on this? She said, Mr. President, I'm just a note taker. He goes, if you're in this room, you've got an opinion. And so he would listen to that, and then he'd make the decision, the hard decisions, and everything would work well with him if you had a fact-based discussion, and you could show it what, over time what would happen, and that it was a transactional base. What I mean by that is always, okay, I get it. What's in it for America? What is good for America? If you very often said, well, you know, this is really good for the for a European environment or somewhere else, you, you were in deep trouble. But if you said, this is what it means for Americans on a transactional base, you were always on good footing. I want
2: to talk and switch gears to COVID now. Uh, Just share with me something I'll learn from this book about Trump's response to COVID, the administration's plan, and maybe how you saw it from inside.
1: Yeah, because when it first started, uh, we walked into the president. It was me, Matt Pottinger, and Robert O'Brien walked in one day and we talked to him. And his, his first response was, okay, you know, and Matt Pottinger was a deputy national security advisor. And he'd been in Wuhan as a Wall Street Journal reporter years earlier when SARS first broke out. He said, look, the Chinese are not telling you the truth. What's going on? Something bad's happening there. And, and we think it's, uh, it's coming out of the lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the BSL Biosafety Level 4 lab, the only one they had in the area. And, you know, remember, they quarantined the city of Wuhan, which is four times the size of London. They built hospitals overnight. Uh, they forcibly moved people into those hospitals out there. So he said something's happening there we think it's an inadvertent release. Of course, we were admittedly called racist and xenophobic when we did it. But he said, "Okay, we've got to figure out how to combat this. And so initially, when we started trying to contain it, we said, "Okay, you know, we do certain things. And then, you know, like the travel ban that was coming out of China. Then we realized and we were listening to the doctors at the time. We had seven of them. He finally said, look, the only way he trumped saying the only way we're going to get out of this is give us a vaccine. And he was right. So so instead of listening to the doctors, he said, let's do this from a business perspective. So we called in all the major pharmaceuticals into the Roosevelt Room in the White House and sat him down. And he said, okay, what's it gonna take to get a vaccine? Because even the doctors said, if you get a vaccine, you're gonna break its back, okay. And they gave all these reasons why you couldn't do it. he said, you know, there, was, there was regulatory reasons to do it. There was bottom line profit loss reasons why you couldn't do it. They're not gonna put a bunch of money in tax their, their own personal money or their, their uh, shareholders money against it. And he said, let me look. So Trump at him and said, And I'll simplify it. Let me get this right. What if I took away uh, all the regulations against you developing this to give you basically immunity from money prosecution? What if I gave you money to create a vaccine and, you know, give you your profit up front? Can you do this? They said, yeah, of course we can. So that's the reason why we basically gave them their profit up front and we said we're going to take a lot of the regulatory issues off the table out there so you don't have to go through years and years of regulation and oh by the way when you start making these vaccines we're going to buy them and before they would go through the trials. so while they were going through trials the phase one two and three trials we were buying it from them we were giving them a profit on something that had not been proven and the reason we did that is because once it got through all the trials if it got through it successfully And there were six different candidates at the time going through the trial. We would have those vaccines ready to go the minute the EUA emergency use authorization was given. So the stuff would be out there right away. Instead of doing it sequentially, taking a year, two, three, four years to do it, we would do it simultaneously. And that's the reason why we were able to develop not one, not two, but three vaccines through American ingenuity in an unheard of time. And no vaccine has ever been created and distributed to the pop, to the population in under four or five years, never been done before. And we got three of them out there. And mm-hmm. he did it because he used business sense. He looked at the doctors and he said, "You do the clinical trials like you're supposed to. You got the medical side of it, but the manufacturing side, development side, we're going to let them develop it on their own, and we're going to pay them to do it, even though this we may be throwing good money after bad." And he asked me one time, "Well, what happens if we don't? If this doesn't work?" I said, well, that means we just throw the vials away and it it doesn't work. He said, well, okay, well, how much money is that? "Ah, Two or three hundred million dollars. He looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, look, you you bought into this. And this is the way we're going to break its back. And we did break its back by developing all these vaccines. And we went up two different vectors. Uh, The the MRA was the newest one. But we had six different candidates going at one time trying to develop these vaccines. We came down to three at the end of it out there that was all because he sat in there and said, let's do something totally different. Let's break them off. And he put together Warp Speed with Slowy as the guy running it who had been working vaccines. And he looked at, he brought in an Army General, four-star General Gus Perna out of AMC and said, you know, Gus, your job is, in the military is distribution. Slowy will make the vaccines, create it. You do the distribution. So when people say you didn't have doctors involved, baloney, well, we had plenty of doctors involved. We did follow the science and we actually put the military in charge of distribution. And, and Gus Pernet put it together, a wonderful plan that has been en- enhanced by the Biden administration, but they didn't create that. That was created under the Trump administration. So one of these days when warp speed is written about and the, the, when history judges it, you will find that I think warp speed was one of the great advantages that came to the United States.
2: No other nation did it. Having heard that the way that process comes together, it it makes me wonder now. Though with this call for boosters, um, I realize the science shows that you know maybe the the efficacy of the mRNA wanes and the antibody levels go down after so many weeks and months after your initial couple jabs, but then they're calling for the necessity for a third booster. Is any of the calls for boosters? Some of those corporations wanting to go back to the buffet table and get a second and third helping of that profit up front that Trump delivered when they were first trying to make the vaccines. Now, I think what's happened, look, this was we have never faced a
1: virus. We've never had one like this before. So we were learning as we were going along. And, you know, even, you know, you know, Tony Fauci, who, trust me, really aggravated me a lot of times. You forgot what federalism is all about and the role of the states out there. And he, he pointed direct stuff from, immediately from the issue. And I said, that's not how states work. In fact, Mike Pence, because he was running the task force, former governor of Indiana, kind of knew it, this is how we need to get it done. But no, it's partly because we didn't know what we didn't know. And it was a constant learning process. And my frustration with the mass with the major media is they didn't really accept that. They said, oh, no, this is bad as a Trump vaccine, you know, it's a Trump, either Trump vaccine or Trump virus said, no, we're learning every day as we go along. And the reason we had to learn as we go along because the Chinese were not forthcoming. To this day, they've not been forthcoming about that virus that came out of Wuhan. And we're pretty sure now, most people agree that it probably was an inadvertent release, not delivered, but an inadvertent release that came out of that lab. So they know all the genomes, They know what's happening. We've never been able to get in there. We've Nobody's ever talked to us about it. And the Chinese haven't. So we don't know exactly how it started. But I think part of that is there, there's been always a mutation. You know, all viruses mutate. Uh, and I think we just through accepting the fact, okay, it's sort of like the flu virus. Maybe this is one of those that's going to be like a flu virus. And you're constantly going to have to take it maybe once a year, twice a year, whatever it's going to take to get a booster shot out there. And the mRNA is a, is a brand new one. We've never had a vaccine based off mRNA at all. So this is all new as well. And so we're kind of still, we're not totally in daylight, we're kind of in twilight, uh, we're coming through this, but it's it's a great learning process we're going through. We saw that early on, we told the president that. I said, look, sir, once we get the vaccine, it's a breakthrough, but we don't know what's going to happen a month down, two months or three or four months down the line, and we're just going to be aware of it. But uh, but a lot of it's been so, my concern, it's been so politicized, the, the whole process about the vaccine and the distribution, to include both political, te- you know, when you look at, you know, when Kamala Harris, when I was at the debate in Salt Lake City with the vice president, when she said she wasn't going to take a Trump vaccine, I nearly threw something at the television set.
0: If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should ta- that we should take it, I'm not taking it.
1: I said it's not a Trump vaccine. I said it's being developed by the medical community. It's something we put a lot of money in. It happens to be out of this administration, but it's, a, it, it's based off science. And when, when she made that comment, she probably turned off a lot of people by taking the vaccine. And she's part of the problem because of that. So I think, uh, you know, to, to close that circle is I think, no, I think we're just continuing to learn. We're not there yet. It's only been a couple of years. But I think most people are now starting to kind of kind of live with it and just have to deal with it. And hopefully we'll finally get to the bottom of it and we'll totally eradicate it. But I don't think so because it's a virus. And I think those viruses just live forever. Yeah, I made a comment. I hate to say this. I remember you went to Vice President early on and I made a comment. And to this day, I'm kicking myself. And I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, sometimes bugs win. And I was being kind of joking. God, I wish I'd never said that. Mm.
2: (laughs) Hmm. Well, I don't think you personally foreshadowed the future there. I mean, I don't think we can blame it all on you, General. But, <laughs> yeah, certainly you foreshadowed uh, some of what we would eventually learn. Uh, that is, yeah, viruses are with us. Uh, we do live on a planet that, uh, yeah, as a human species, we are um, susceptible to them. And um, we have to learn how to deal with them, live around them, live with them, and mitigate the circumstances so that we can thrive um, in perpetuity. Um, So many great things in this book. So many great chapters. I don't want to give it all away. Hey, lastly, let's just end with what happened in the White House as events of January 6th and your discussions, even from the opening pages of the book, talking about <laughs> Steve Bannon, kind of a mad scientist with papers all up on his wall, butcher paper and strategy lists. And he was just, you know, he, he just looked and sounded like everything that was not D.C. And then you're more buttoned up. You're a little more polished. Of course, you've been, you know, a military general. Um, You know, the differences between you two were just so apparent. But then fast forward to the end of the administration, this election, this January 6th thing. I guess what I really want to know is he knew that he had a supercharged audience out there on the mall. He knew that there was a lot of pain just as watching your favorite football team maybe win or lose a game. You're emotional about the situation is there any aspect of his comments from behind the podium that you feel could have incited that crowd to go do what ultimately happened? Is there any blame for president Trump? Is there any blame for Steve Bannon? Is there any, is there any responsibility they hold for saying, let's march down there and whatever, show them how we feel, or let's march down there and, you know, whatever, just calling them to even march down there. I mean, is, is, is anybody responsible for what happened?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the, there is an accountability issue. And I'm going to kind of turn it on you a little bit, because what I mean by that is on accountability is, you know, when when you look at it, I went through the election. I mean, I went through two president's elections last month. When I went to bed on election night, I thought we'd won. I mean, I, I'd seen the numbers from, from Michigan and from Pennsylvania, the enormous sleeves that we had. And then I wake up the next morning and it's not there. And where I'm coming from is I said to, my, to a lot of people, where did those things come from? And nobody can give me straight answers on accountability. And the trouble is when you get an election, that the time for response is almost zero. Because once those numbers are decided and AP announces they did a few days later that Joe Biden won the presidency, nobody can go back and do the forensics on that. And it was an unusual election in that regard. So there's a lot of people pent up frustration the saying, wait, how can we be so far ahead? And then in, in the middle of the night, it wasn't done. All those elections, those election, that election turned in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. That turned in the early morning hours. If you look at the, the, the numbers, when those numbers changed, wasn't it wasn't like at midnight. It wasn't at seven in the morning. It was like two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. So my frustration is, look, nobody came up with some really good accountability to explain that. So fast forward now to 6th January. When I, when I came into the White House that morning, I saw the crowds forming and most, in fact, all of them were jovial. They were happy. They were waving to me. The Secret Service was in normal gear, meaning they weren't ready for any protest or riot. There was no inaugural fence up. That's the 20 foot fence they put on around the White House for inauguration. Nothing was up there. And, and we had never had in, in over five years, we had never had a rally that had gone bad. Never. So and we had had huge rallies. So when we went out there and he talked to the crowd, the crowd that I saw and I was near the podium stage, they were all laughing, waving flags. Pretty good time. Uh, And we did not realize what had happened until we had gone back inside the White House. In fact, candidly, I was having a chicken sandwich sitting in my office, watching the TV and going, what the hell's going on here? And because we had no idea, the president was his normal son. He'd, he'd spoke no differently than he had in other times before, being very, very blunt about it, uh, going there. And it was allowed people to get their frustrations out. So the, the riot that after, ensued afterwards was something that we had never seen before. But I don't, when, I, when I think about the frustration, my frustration goes back earlier, and I blame a lot of the mainstream media on this. If you had been able to explain this accountability of what had actually happened or got into it and explained it to the American people, then I don't think we would have that. You know, look, Joe Biden is president of the United States. Got it, okay? He's been elected as president. But there were anomalies in this election that have never been announced to the American people, and they were feeling that frustration that day, that they were saying something is not right. So, I mean, it's it, it was a bad day. I, I like to say I had uh, you know, 1,461 days in the White House, and 1,460 were pretty good. One day wasn't, that was 6th January. It didn't go well, and it was unfortunate. But at the same time, it wasn't an insurrection. I think it was a a, a mob had gone bad, a riot went, ensued, uh, and they didn't have ability to control it. Look, nobody's been charged for sedition, and no weapons have ever been found. So, if, if that was an insurrection, it was a really badly led insurrection by somebody who looked like Chewbacca. Uh, you know, and that's about it. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I look at it, and I go, you know, when history, when people just need to step back and say, okay. What caused that? What actually happened out there? And not in a nonpartisan way. And the trouble is, I don't think you can do that for a couple of years until the the heat of the moment is gone. And a lot of the, the personalities are gone. And then say, okay, what really generated that? And do a really good historical analysis. Because there's a real schism out there and there's a real fracture. And I'm one of those saying, look, statistically there's some real anomalies. I just want to know how we got to where we're at. How did we get to sixth January? How did we get to that election and, and eliminate the frustrations? I mean, you know, Joe Biden won more electoral vote won more votes than any other president in history, but so did so did Donald Trump. And so you say to yourself, okay, how did we get there? And, and that analysis has not been done. And I'm just hoping some historian, not a politician, some historian sits down and writes the story of that. I
2: don't mind really to
1: again. You're right about Steve Bannon. I mean, when he used to put those things on early on in the administration, and put them on the wall of his office, I kept thinking, I don't think people are going to like him scotch taping stuff to the walls here.
2: <laughs> just and you know, just the general look too. I mean, he was disheveled looking; his hair is a mess. He just he just looked like everything you don't want in politics, or frankly, you know, in the principal's office or in your leader's office. He just looked like a mad scientist, which I think the words you used. Um, In no way do you think there was some sort of secret meeting at the Willard where he was planning to have his Oathkeeper assets at Point and another group at Perimeter and that at a certain call the dog whistle will go off and the snow and the snow fence will get crushed and they'll lunge towards the U.S. Capitol stairs and up they'll go breaking in windows like that wasn't a detailed plan based on what you'd experienced inside? Yeah,
1: well, okay, what, it was nothing that I had seen, nothing that I heard about, nothing that we even saw in the Oval Office at that time. Now, you probably, you know, very candidly, yeah, there were probably some things, some weird people going on, and there were some people out there who shouldn't, probably been about, within about 20 miles of the White House. And, and I think those are unfortunate, but those are one-offs. Those were not government-sanctioned, or the president was aware of it. I, and I was, you know, I would think I was pretty close to all of the action out there, and I never even heard of that until later. So that yeah. was going on i mean i never even saw steve Bennett in the white house uh early on out there and there were some people i wish you know in retrospect had not been in the white house at that time uh, but that was all sub roses somebody else was doing that and i think it was really stupid i mean he you know I, i've seen later i saw reports or actually saw the, the comments that steve made on his radio show you know about you know tomorrow's a big day and everything else it's almost like God. he was not helpful out there but that was not a coordinated plan that was Steve Bannon, you know, trying to rabble-rouse. And I think what happened is they raised it to a degree that they got that, uh, and it was not a, something they actually thought was going to happen. It was one of those where, okay, we're going to talk really big about it and nothing's going to happen. Well, something did happen.
2: Yeah. And sometimes you just speak to speak. I mean, I've talked about my favorite football team crushing their opponent, but I physically don't want to see somebody actually get crushed. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I don't want lives to be lost in the football field. I just want my team to win. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, some- the, morning, the morning
1: of 60, January, I was in the Oval Office. We went through the president's speech, line by line by line. I was there with him, and we went through it. And I saw nothing in that speech was a, that was inflammatory, nothing. And uh, we went over it several times. And I said, okay, and he would be, now, the president would ad-lib when he got to a speech. I, you know, most people know that. You know, yeah. we wrote a 40-minute speech. It ended up being 60 minutes and 20 minutes were ad-lib. <laughs> I got the first time we ever gave a speech, the, the teleprompter guy started trying to find him, and I said, "Stop!" He said he'll come back to you. He's ad-libbing. Don't worry about it. You know, stay on that line. He'll eventually come back to you and do it. So he would ad-lib, but for the most part, the speech that was written—not for the most part, for all of it—that speech was a normal speech. Uh, it was nothing was inflammatory. I had it in my hand, was reading it as he was reading it, and then, mm. it, and then it, you know, then it went south later on in the day.
2: Right on. Well, the book is, again, totally fascinating. War by Other Means, a General in the Trump White House. You are General Keith Kellogg. And I got to say, man, it's so cool to go behind the curtain. I've always been kind of a political geek growing up in the, you know, throes of Washington, D.C. and Bethesda, Maryland. My dad worked for the Interior Department. But I've always been intrigued by how it works, the political theater that goes on in there. And you really... Give some firsthand accounts of what you witnessed inside the White House, from the campaign days to the very early days of the administration, and on throughout its all four years. Um, just plain fascinating, sir. I, I, I really do mean that. Uh, if I can ask to wrap today, um, war by other means. What did you mean by that? Is the title of the book?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it goes back to uh, to Clausewitz, who's the great Prussian theoretical military guy that kind of did, you know, when he made the comment that war is just politics by by other means and i said you know i kind of reversed it that politics is basically war by other means and it really is here in washington dc it's, you know politics is is a is a fight i don't care if it's a fight over budget it's a fight over ideas it's a fight over uh, you know influence so it's a war and it's a war by other means and that's what i mean is the political side of it so i took what clausewitz said and kind of put it turned it on its head
2: all right well we'll add that to your list of accomplishments there you are uh, not only a national security advisor not only a former general but uh, now you're like a philosopher Uh, (laughs) add that to the list of titles Uh, General Keith Kellogg war by other means a general in the Trump White House absolute pleasure to read buy it everywhere you get books and uh, yeah come back I look forward to talking to you about uh, just everything in the world I'd love to have you come back on the show you invite I'll be here outstanding general thank you for your time
0: a story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.